Hello, and welcome to Decarbonize, the clean energy podcast from Fresh Energy. Fresh Energy is a Minnesota nonprofit working to speed our state's transition to a clean energy economy. My name is Joe Olson. I do communications here at Fresh Energy, and I'm with you today because we are celebrating Give to the Max Day here in Minnesota on November 19th. So in honor of this unofficial giving holiday, we wanted to share with you an excerpt of a conversation between Michael Noble, Fresh Energy's Executive Director, and Dr. Leah Stokes, internationally recognized clean energy thought leader. Dr. Stokes was the keynote speaker at Fresh Energy's virtual benefit breakfast in October, so we'll be resharing their conversation from the breakfast in addition to about 25 minutes of bonus content. So Michael gave Dr. Stokes a call after the election to get her take on what the results could mean for clean energy policy and federal leadership. So stay tuned for that extra 25. I guarantee you it is worth it. No matter when you're listening to this, whether it is Give to the Max Day or after, we hope you will support Fresh Energy's work. You can do that directly on our website at fresh-energy.org or go to givemn.org and search Fresh Energy. And with that, let's get started. And now I am incredibly pleased to introduce our featured speaker, Dr. Leah Stokes. She's a national expert on energy policy, on climate policy, and on environmental politics. She has a fantastic new book, Short-Circuiting Policy, where she examines how states have stumbled and fallen down on clean energy and how we can turn it around. So following her keynote, I'll join her back on the screen for a short conversation. So take it away, Dr. Leah Stokes. Good morning, everybody, and thanks so much for joining us for this very important event. I'm delighted to have been asked to speak with you today. My name is Leah Stokes, and I'm a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And today I'm going to be talking to you about the opportunity that we have before us when it comes to cleaning up our electricity system and how that opportunity can really catalyze decarbonization across our economy while creating millions of good paying jobs in the process. So the challenge that we face is something that I have called the narwhal curve. And the basic idea is that we have to build an enormous amount of clean electricity very quickly. If we were to target the year 2050 for a fully clean electricity system, which is the number that a lot of people were talking about just a few years ago, we have to be ramping up the speed that we deploy renewables. Because if we were to start in the year 2000, and draw a straight line out to 2050, we would need to grow the clean electricity share by two percentage points every year. And in the very best year so far, we've only hit about 1.7 percentage points of new renewable energy. So in many ways, we've been living on borrowed time with our nuclear fleet and our hydropower fleet, and we need to be acting a lot faster on renewables. Now, today, many are saying that 2050 is not fast enough. Scientific reports, such as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, they have put out reports that say, in order to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we need to cut our emissions by about half by the year 2030. 
And electricity is truly the best way that we can get to decarbonization across our economy. So what if we targeted 100% clean electricity by 2035? That's a new idea that has a lot of people talking. And this is an image that shows you the kind of slope that we're talking about in terms of speeding up clean energy deployment. We need to be moving a lot faster, though it is quite doable. If you're interested in this argument, I actually made a little video about it that you could share with people in your businesses or your friends or your colleagues. It's called the Narwhal Curve video, and you can just go to bit.ly slash Narwhal Curve, and you can share this basic idea with people. Now, of course, states across the country have already been leading the way in targeting 100% clean or 100% renewable energy. We have some states like California, Nevada, New Mexico, in some ways parts of Colorado, as well as New York, um, Maine, many parts of our country. In fact, maybe as much as 20% of our states have been acting to try to target 100% clean electricity. And of course, in Minnesota, we came very close to getting this law on the books. And that really, truly will be an important change going forward to have Minnesota join all the other leaders across this country that are targeting 100% clean electricity. Now, I'm going to tell you a bit of a magic trick. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how we can get from cleaning up our electricity system to solving the lion's share of the climate problem. So how do we do that? We do that by electrifying as much as we can. So we can start by cleaning up the electricity system. That today is about 27% of the U.S.'s total carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions. All right, well, that's only about a quarter of the way. So how am I gonna get us so much farther? Well, I'm going to add in the transportation sector. That is in fact the largest sector right now for greenhouse gas emissions. It's another quarter of our emissions. And although we won't be able to clean up every single slice of that sector because things like aviation will be difficult to electrify, we can do a lot of that 28%. Next, I'm gonna add in the building sector. And buildings, commercial and residential buildings, account for about 12% of our greenhouse gas emissions. Right now, we're using a lot of fossil gas to heat our homes, to do cooking. Uh, lots of things that happen in our homes when it comes to energy involve fossil fuels. So if we electrify our homes through things like heat pumps and induction stoves that are getting really cheaper by the day and have all these health benefits too by not having indoor air pollution, we can get another 12% of our carbon emissions done. And finally, I'm going to add in half of our heavy industry emissions. Heavy industry contributes about 22% of our emissions, but there are parts of our industrial sector that can be electrified. So if we add up the electricity, transportation, building, and industrial sector, we get to between 70 to 80% of all U.S. emissions. 
So electricity really is the first linchpin of our economy-wide decarbonization. It is a catalyst that can allow us to use clean power to do so many things that we need to do. And it truly presents a once-in-a-century opportunity to our electric power industry to have massive growth, lots of new jobs, lots of new generation facilities, and to use that clean power and leadership to clean up the rest of our economy. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, this is a great story. That was a great magic trick. But can we actually do it? Can we clean up our electricity system fast? And the good news is that we had a landmark report come out this summer. You can just go to the 2035report.com and you can learn about the research from scientists at UC Berkeley and Grid Lab, as well as Energy Innovation. And what they did is they modeled how quickly can we clean up our electricity system? How quickly can we get to 90% clean? And they show that it is very doable by 2035. Indeed, we can actually be saving customers money as we clean up our electricity system. Because in lots of parts of our country right now, continuing to operate old and dirty coal plants is not just bad for our public health or bad for the climate crisis, it's also bad for customers' bills. It's quite an expensive approach. And so cleaning up our electricity system is not just technologically feasible, it's also economically beneficial by lowering customers' bills. I'll leave you with one final thought, which is that we are having leadership from some parts of our corporate sector. There are a few utilities um, that are leading the way, such as NIPSCO, um, parts of Excel Energy, and others in this country who are targeting cleaning up our electricity system in a faster timeline. They're targeting things like an 80% reduction by 2030. And that truly is the kind of leadership that we need in terms of a pathway to 2035 and 100% clean electricity. And we also have other corporate leaders like Google that has made a truly landmark commitment over the last month. They have committed to 100% clean electricity by 2030, supplied to all their facilities in real time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That kind of bold and visionary target is the sort of leadership that we need to be seeing from our corporate community. We need our corporate leaders to be saying, yes, we can do this and we can do it quickly. So thank you very much. And if you're interested in learning about more of my work, I have a new podcast called A Matter of Degrees. And indeed, in the most recent episode, we talk about cleaning up our electricity system by 2030 and how that can clean up our buildings and our transportation sector. You can also check out my book, Short Circuiting Policy, and a wonderful collection of essays that I'm featured in called All We Can Save, which truly would make a great present for anyone in your life who is interested in climate change. So thank you so much for all the work that you're doing to support Fresh, Fresh Energy, a wonderful organization, and to drive climate action in the state of Minnesota. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Leah Stokes. What a great uh, honor to have you at our Fresh Energy Benefit Breakfast. Hello, Joe, jumping back in here to note that this ends the benefit breakfast conversation that Dr. Stokes and Michael had. And now we're segmenting into the 25 minutes of post-election bonus content. 
Uh, Joe Biden has been declared the president-elect. And um, my first question is that you, one of the things that helped make you famous in America is you very systematically uh, reviewed uh, the climate platforms of everybody who was running for president. And in the end, you were quite enthusiastic about the Joe Biden climate plan, as I recall. Why were you so enthusiastic? And, and how, did, how did the moderate centrist guy come up with the dramatic clean energy climate plan? Well, it's funny. My husband always likes to make fun of me when I call something famous, like, you know, an academic paper or in climate and energy world. It's not real famous. I'm just like in a niche way amongst your fresh energy folks. And yeah. actually, as I told Michael, I heard I got a phone call um, from somebody who was phone banking and they had gone to the fresh energy event and they recognized me. We got to talk. So I'm that level of famous. I'm within the environmental world. Um, very fun. So, yeah, you know, I was not initially the most enthusiastic about the first iteration of the Biden climate plan. Um, you know, I think they were playing it kind of safe initially. They were playing in a world like we had in, let's say, 2012 or 2016, where generally in elections, people don't talk about climate change, they don't talk about climate policy, it's it was viewed by large parts of the democratic establishment as being kind of a losing issue. But things shifted, really, the ground moved beneath their feet. And with people like Jay Inslee, and Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren, and Julian Castro, and Kamala Harris, and Cory Booker, Cory Booker actually had a great plan. We can go on and, Mike, and on and Mike, on. And Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg had a plan. Um, Amy Klobuchar, right? We had so many people talking about climate change that um, Chris, Kristen Gillibrand, actually. So basically, it became a race to the top. and. I, I don't think that Joe Biden, now that I understand him a little bit better, I don't think that he's ever been an anti-climate guy by any means. I think it's actually been at the top of his list, but that the campaign maybe was trying to play it safe and didn't want to like lose votes by talking about this issue too much. And they were not recognizing in the early days the upside of how, how many people are worried about climate change, how many people want action, particularly amongst young people. And so I think what happened to shift their platform was that you know, Jay Inslee was in the race. That was very influential. Um, when Bernie Sanders eventually dropped out, they created this unity task force and um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, John Kerry, Varshini Prakash, the head of the Sunrise Movement. A lot of interesting, great people were on that. And that's where they came up with a bunch of these numbers. And like, for example, the 2035 target for electricity. And that came out of Jay Inslee's work. So in many ways, the Evergreen Action, which is an organization that came out of Jay Inslee's campaign and that I'm part of, you know, they really kept working on stuff, kept talking to campaigns. And I think Joe Biden, he met directly with um, Jay Inslee at that time. And he also, Joe Biden, met directly with environmental justice groups. And I think, you know, personally, Joe Biden wanted to show that his commitment was real, because I actually believe that from the jump, Joe Biden really cared about this issue. I don't think this is like an awakening moment. I just think that he, his own view of himself and how much he cares about infrastructure and action was not being reflected by the movement or by other people and that he had to kind of get the plans in line with what the movement wanted for them to really recognize that actually Joe Biden is a fantastic climate leader. So that's certainly where I am at now. And I'll tell you another great thing about Joe Biden is that he has very good ties with unions. And so the IBEW came on board and were supporting him and working on this climate plan too. And that is huge because in the past we've had some opposition to climate policy from unions and that's been really problematic within the Democratic party. So 
maybe Joe Biden was the climate champion we were always looking for. Um, that's kind of where I'm at mentally. So I really think it's been an exciting time where the movement has had real influence and Joe Biden has really listened. And uh, I'm hopeful, I'm very hopeful that we will get some progress in the next administration. So he's, he's now the president-elect. He's going to be inaugurated on a, a January 20th, uh, serve a four-year term as president. Does Joe Biden have a, a mandate to lead on climate? Well, Michael, it's almost like you read an op-ed I published over the weekend <laughs> in the Boston Globe called Biden has a climate mandate. Um, so yeah, I really think he does. The great thing about how the campaign ended up pivoting over the last several months is that they talked about climate change all the time. Joe Biden gave an entire speech on climate change. He raised it in the debates with uh, Donald Trump. He, they actually ran ads in Michigan and Arizona, swing states, pretty key swing states, it turned out, um, on climate change. And there's increasing evidence that huge amounts of donors gave money to the campaign from the climate community. Um, and also a lot of people volunteered time from the climate community, whether that was Sierra Club or the Sunrise Movement or Clean Energy for Biden. All these groups grew up to really get out the vote. So I think that that just shows that there's been huge enthusiasm. People have voted on this issue. They've wanted him to talk to do this. And he himself has adopted this framing of four crises, COVID, the economy, racial injustice, and climate change. And when you go on the transition website, you'll see that it's right there, right up in front with those other problems. And, you know, Joe Biden in, so he gave a speech on Friday where he talked about how um, he believes climate is our mandate and that he ran on this issue and that it's one of the top things he's gonna do. And then as well, both Kamala Harris and Joe Biden in their speeches on Saturday, both brought up climate change too. So. He, he's literally said it himself, I have a climate mandate, that I've provided lots of evidence to back that theory up that Joe Biden has a climate mandate. So it's the first time in a decade that maybe we can do some stuff. It's pretty exciting. I was excited to hear him say on, on another a competing podcast, uh, uh, I think interviewed with John Favreau, that uh, climate change is the number one issue facing humanity, and it's the number one issue for me. So I thought that was yeah. I love that. I put that in my op-ed. And you know what's the crazy thing? That That's not just a one-off. Um, Evergreen Actions made this fantastic ad talking about how this was a climate election and Joe Biden ran on climate and won on climate. And they've just clipped together a bunch of statements that he's made, you know, including from that speech that he gave exclusively on climate change. And he says this stuff all the time. I feel like partially we weren't totally listening, you know? So he's been telling us that this is a number one issue and it's right at the top of our list. Um, and, and so I am genuinely excited. And Kamala Harris too, who we haven't talked as much about, you know, she's never really taken money from the fossil fuel industry which is fantastic for somebody first standing in the Democratic Party. Um, she's gone after polluters when she was attorney general in California. You know, she ran on climate change. She's introduced bills in Congress on environmental justice and climate change. And so I think between Biden and Harris, like this is kind of an awesome place to be. The A-team. So, uh, you know, there's so much a president can do with executive authority and executive action under our Constitution. There's, he has an enormous authority. What will we expect from the Biden presidency? Uh, and maybe start with uh, his promise to rejoin Paris on the first day. That was kind of the throwaway line. Every single politician used that. But it is actually meaningful. And what is he going to do when he gets back to uh, 
the table of 192 nations. What is he going to do and what is he going to say? Well, it's amazing how popular it is to get back into Paris. I'll never forget, I was in a cab outside of DC talking to a man who did not know anything about climate change, the cab driver, and he knew about Trump pulling out of the Paris Agreement and he thought it was terrible. That really broke through for a lot of Americans and they think it's shameful. And so when Joe Biden announced before he was even declared the president-elect <clears throat> between election day and Saturday, he announced, I'm gonna be back in Paris because the Paris withdrawal happened the day after election day. Um, so, you know, that's really exciting. I think people are really hopeful about the U.S. being back in globally. So, yeah, that's a day one action and it's going to happen. He's already committed to it. But there are so many other tools in the toolbox. My approach that I support as well as Evergreen Action supports is this standards investment justice approach, which is you set the rules of the road, you put standards in place for the power sector, for cars, for appliances. You know, you just say, here's where we gotta be and everybody goes in that direction. You know, we had been thinking very much that we would get new legislation in Congress. And of course, with the way the Senate is right now, that's not looking great. But what I think a lot of us forgot is that we have so many laws on the books already and that a lot of our standards can be done already under existing authority. So this standards approach is kind of all, you know, full steam ahead. We can do buildings, we can do we can do buildings, we can do cars, and we can do appliances without new legislation. Is that true? We can do federal building standards. Yep. And we can do electricity. We can do automotive standards. Yeah, because the Clean Power Air plan. Act, it gives us so much authority. And Obama had tried to do the Clean Power Plan. That was slow done because they wanted to do legislation first. I think if we know we're, we're not going to get a great shot at legislation, they're going to go full steam ahead on the Clean Air Act. And the fact is the Supreme Court has already ruled that um, the EPA had to issue the endangerment finding to say whether or not carbon dioxide was a pollutant that endangered people. And shocker, it is. And so that means that the Clean Air Act can be used to regulate carbon dioxide as a pollutant and it can be used to regulate the power sector. So I think we can get a lot of the way there with the tools in the toolbox. And that's just standards, right? Then we have investments. The fact is that we've spent a lot of government money this year. A lot of it's been wasted. We did a whole episode of A Matter of Degrees, our podcast about- I heard the that. How much money went to the fossil fuel industry hidden between the pages? Exactly, very sad. But the good silver lining of that is we didn't spend all the money. There's still a lot more money left from the CARES Act and we could turn around the Federal Reserve, you know, turn around Treasury and start having those agencies do good things with the money, right? Start having those agencies price in the risks of continuing to do fossil fuel um, investment. So there's probably still law. money lying around. Law. Yeah. Current law. Yeah, we still have money. And also there's lots of money from existing appropriations sitting around in buckets all over the government that haven't been spent. The Trump administration is pretty incompetent, remember. Um, he was very authoritarian, but not awesome at running a government. A lot of people quit. They hauled out a lot of agencies, which means that they didn't spend as much money probably as they could have. And so there will be money that's sitting around. Plus, eventually Congress has to do COVID relief. They have to do economic stimulus. They have to do a budget bill. There will be opportunities to get investments through legislation. Those and things then, will happen. There will be a budget. Yep. That has to happen. There will be that a budget. Has to happen, right? We got to fund the federal government. So let's there will, just. There, there probably will be economic stimulus. Exactly. So we can still get investments. And then when it comes to justice, the third um, leg of the stool, as I say, 
you know, we'll have the Department of Justice <laughs> running, running the federal government is worth something, right? So Kamala Harris, for example, when she was running for president, she talked a lot about going after polluters through the Department of Justice. And of course, that will be up to the Department of Justice as an independent agency. But you can imagine that there will start to be some accountability for polluters lying about climate change, you know, lying to shareholders, um, not telling the truth to the American public. Um, and I think in all the investments that we're doing, the, the Biden administration will be very focused on making sure that those investments are going to frontline communities, to black communities, to indigenous communities. You know, he's made it really clear that he wants 40% of the investments in climate of this $2 trillion that we've been talking about to be going towards those kinds of communities. And, you know, those communities are environmental justice communities, black and indigenous and Hispanic communities, but they're also, you know, coal communities and gas communities and places that have had historic fossil fuel extraction. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of potential here to have a win-win where we're helping people, you know, get trained for new jobs. We're making sure that places where coal plants are shutting down, aren't being left behind, you know, we can do a transition in a just way. And I think that that is what the Biden campaign was all about and what the Biden administration will, will do. So, you know, I'm still hopeful. It's, it's going to be a harder thing. But as Michael and I were chatting before, even if we had gotten the Senate back, you know, there's still a filibuster. There's still some Democrats who might not be on board. It would have been a long, hard uphill battle. So in a certain sense, knowing with clear eyes that it's executive action, go, might allow us to not get distracted as much like the Obama administration did with let's get the magic climate legislation that will let us go and, and sort of back burner some of the executive action until it was really late in the term. Um, so yeah, I think it's really firing on all cylinders here. And um, I'm very hopeful. Yeah, the Obama administration wasted about two years trying to pass their Waxman-Markey bill, which was quite modest, and uh, it never even came to the Senate floor for a debate after Nancy Pelosi left it all on the playing field, rounding up all her committee chairs, and uh, just there was no energy left in the administration to get it uh, debated in the United States Senate. There was no energy left in the United States Senate. Absolutely. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi has taken a little bit of heat lately. And I got to say, you're right. She deserves credit. She did pass the Waxman-Margie bill, and that was no easy thing to do. And it's not really her fault that we don't have climate legislation. She's the one who put it all on the line to get that bill passed. And we ran up against the Senate, and we could have just been in that same place, too. So now at least we can say, you know what? If that's not going to work, we're going to green investments, we're going to green stimulus, and we're going to try to, you know, just make every bill a climate bill as opposed to the magical one-shot climate bill. And then we're just going to use the executive authority, use existing legislation to go full steam ahead. So, hey, maybe this will end up being a fruitful approach. Time will tell. You know, the, I think you've told this story as well as anybody that the, 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 the political debate, the political climate, the public conversation, the public understanding is just so dramatically different than it was 10 years ago or five years ago or two years ago. And so much credit goes to the youth activists and the grassroots and the, the so-called climate movement. You know, I, I, I consider both of us part of the climate movement, but, you know, we, I haven't put my body on the line the way Varshini Prakash did. You know, tell that story about how she made American history um, by confronting the uh, the Speaker of the House on um, 
climate action in 2018 and how that really, really changed the public debate and made the room for Jay Inslee to run for, for president, made the room for Joe Biden to be a, a fierce climate hawk when when maybe the stars weren't lined up two years ago for this. Maybe, maybe, maybe now is our moment because people change history. Greta Thunberg, Marshini Prakash, and all the youth climate activists, including groups in Minnesota like Climate Generation, uh, which I served on the board for 10 years, the climate youth movement here in our town. Absolutely. You know, so another episode of our podcast, A Matter of Degrees, tells that story of the Sunrise Movement. And we interviewed Varshini for that. And um, it's it's really fun to hear the inside story of these kids who just sort of decided to do something crazy. So, you know, they founded this organization a couple of years ago. Um, they were really early going. They were reading all these old um, stories and books about uh, the civil rights movement, actually, and trying to learn about the history of nonviolent direct action and trying to think about how can we confront politicians, confront power in a way that builds power for the movement. And they just really saw that climate policy was not at the scale of the problem and that their own lives were going to be dramatically altered if we didn't start getting on top of this. And so right after the 2018 election, they decided that midterm where we got a lot of new people in Congress, big blue wave, you know, they decided to do an action at Nancy Pelosi's office. And they asked um, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, hey, like who, who wasn't even really in Congress yet? She'd just been elected like days before. And they said, hey, would you be willing to do, you know, would you be willing to tweet this action? Just like amplify it a bit. And she said, oh, I don't want to just tweet it. I want to be part of it. And she also said, there needs to be a clear ask. Because at the time, and you'll see it if you look at the pictures, they didn't, it didn't say Green New Deal. It said Green Jobs Now and things like that. Like they, they didn't have a specific ask. And so she said, we need an ask. Let's make it the Green New Deal. And so um, they end up having her come and do the action and that just elevated it to such an intense level because this young freshman woman of color youngest woman ever elected you know is in nancy pelosi's office protesting about climate change and that was kind of like a hot gossipy thing to talk about it kind of made the whole thing seem more interesting than just climate change so it ended up being you know thousands and thousands of articles written about it and it launched the sunrise movement to a whole other level and they were new they were a new organization it's not like they've been toiling away for years they just did this thing and it went viral and they also did a confrontation of diane feinstein um and that also went very viral and we also tell that story in the podcast um, because you know these story these things aren't easy to do like I don't know if I would want to just show up in some politician's office and be like you're not doing good enough like I feel bad I don't know like these kids they got a lot of chutzpah you know they got a lot of guts they're just willing to go out there and and really make it clear what the stakes are so I'm not I'm not a big protester to be honest because that's just not who I am I, I like research and I'm like nerdy and that kind of thing but what I think we've learned from the sunrise movement is that we it takes all kinds to be part of the climate movement right it takes people who are doing an inside negotiation to say here's the bill we got to run and let's negotiate it and then it takes people on the outside pushing and we do, we, we got to give a lot of credit to the youth climate movement for just yes, pushing on the outside and then it allowed it allowed in, in this last month or two Joe Biden to say in the second debate that we're going to transition away from oil and all the media pretended like that was some kind of gaffe or mistake and I'm like no that's exactly what he needs to say that's that's what's going to happen 
but he didn't want to get trapped in over on the left wing. He said, no, I'm, I'm not about the Green New Deal. I'm about the Biden deal. And yes. all the Green New Deal kids were like, we're cool with the Biden deal. We know what's in <laughs> the that Biden box. Green Deal. Yes, the Biden Green Deal. I'm like, cool, works for me. I mean, climate people, we're flexible. You know what I mean? My friend. Call it, call it what you want, pal. Just make it happen. Call it what you want. Yes, exactly. Uh, Jamie Han, who's who helped found 350 and now is doing some other projects. He's a big fan. Yes, I know Jamie. Jamie and I are friends. I know Jamie well. Yes. Yeah, so he tweeted the other day that he wrote climate activists on his phone and it got auto, it got autocorrected to climate acrobats. And he thought that was more appropriate. I feel <laughs> the way too, right? It's like, oh, we didn't win this in it. Like, what's our new plan? You know, we always just on to the next of how we're going to make progress, no matter what the obstacles are. Because guess what? Our challenge was always kind of impossible. So if it's a little bit more kind of impossible, like, oh, well, you know, it's never going to be easy to beat the fossil fuel industry. Well, uh, I think we should uh, uh, make, maybe get, get closure. We promised we would keep it under 30 minutes. Uh, well, now I have to ask you a question then, Michael. Oh, you do? Yes. So uh -huh. Minnesota, we were, you know, watching those races pretty closely and you're still going to have a divided uh, legislature now. So what do you think are going to be the prospects for action in Minnesota next year? Well, you know, I don't think people, polite people don't want to talk about it, but the power of the oil money is overwhelming in our legislature. Uh, you know, it's well documented in, in the in the in the literature that the the coke industry's money in politics is roughly equal to the Democratic Party in 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 politics, and roughly equal to the Republican Party money in politics, and. Uh, People might not be aware, but the largest asset of Coke Industries is a is a refinery just about 15 miles from my house down the road, and so they are quite influential in Minnesota politics. Uh, and you know they have inroads with the labor unions, and they have inroads with the uh, Republican Party, and they have discovered that uh, Minnesota legislature is a place where they can throw their weight around. You know, there's a story where we had a bill last year uh, called the ECO Act, and it was a bill that was negotiated over a two-year period with all the municipal utilities, the cooperative utilities, the investor-owned utilities, the environmentalists, the state agencies, the Public Utilities Commission, and it had a, a freshman Republican author from a, a low-income district, and he was a, a he owned a, a small business, a, a electrical contractor company. And he was an IBEW member, and he was the chief author of a bill that had no opposition. And that bill couldn't get a hearing on the Senate floor. That bill had the support from a Republican committee chair of the, the Finance Committee, Republican committee chair of the Bonding Committee, Republican committee chair of the Energy Committee, and this freshman legislator who needed a break from rural Minnesota, who's an electrical worker and owned a small business. And the co-ops were calling all rural members and pushing and pushing and pushing. And what does that tell you? Does it tell you that they couldn't get around to his bill? No, it tells you the power of Coke money in Minnesota politics. So there's, you know, gonna be, I mean, we're not giving up. We, we wanna pass our 100% our clean energy standard. We wanna support uh, the governor's uh, platform to get the carbon out of the economy. We wanna support, uh, uh, the members of the Republican caucus in the Senate who want to take us in the right direction, but we have to figure out some way 
to directly take on the power of oil money in our politics, which is corrosive and has uh, prevented us from accomplishing anything legislatively over a two year period. So I just have to call it out as it is that, uh, you know, we, we have a long history working with both political parties and with leaders of both political parties. Our, uh, the year we ran the table and passed everything on our agenda into law uh, was all signed into law re by Republican Governor Tim Pawlenty in 2007, including a, a cap on um, a, a moratorium on new coal plants, uh, the renewable energy standard, uh, and um, uh, the, 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 the first state policy goal to reduce emissions economy-wide 80% by 2050. You know, I'd like to update that uh, equivalent to the modern science, but I think the oil industry is, I think you write about it, the, you call it the fog of enactment. And you say, sometimes the opponents don't exactly know what's going on legislatively. And sometimes things fly under the radar. We're not under the radar anymore. Nope. <laughs> We're not under the radar. Climate action is not under the radar. And the oil industry knows that we are completely committed to getting all the carbon out of our state's economy. So the oil and gas industry is our main nemesis. And I, I mentioned to you in our first interview uh, that we are working really, really, really hard to find common ground with our electric industry allies uh, wherever we can and find, uh, you know, if get all the carbon out of the electric supply and electrify everything we can. You know, and you said you said we don't need a hundred percent clean energy standard. We need two hundred percent or three hundred percent. And uh, you know, I always joke that uh, you know what part of Exxon Mobil's market share don't you want, guys? So we can work together on this. Yeah, so get I, the utilities I'm, on board. Great. <laughs> get the utilities on our side. And I'm an optimist. That's you know part of how I've made my living at this for thirty years is just plowing ahead. And uh, I really, really, really believe the public is overwhelming with us. Uh, I think in your op-ed, you cited that um, on Fox News election night, they reported polling data that 70% of Americans in both political parties want to see the federal government increase investments in clean energy innovation and clean energy uh, technology. That's, that's what I'm ha hanging my hat on is the voters and the public and the, uh, the, 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 the rightness and trueness of our cause I'm, I'm just going to keep going at it and um, expect big things out of your friends in Minnesota, Leah. Absolutely. Well, it's been so fun to connect with everybody in Minnesota, and I hope everybody's going to keep giving lots of money to Fresh Energy because we got to make progress no matter who controls any chamber anywhere, right? We just got to make progress. You're a wonderful leader and a wonderful thinker, Leah, and uh, your stature just grows, uh, and we're very happy that you're friends of Fresh Energy and we'll be friends forever. Awesome. Beautiful. Thanks so much. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in to the recording of Michael Noble's conversation with Dr. Leah Stokes. You can stay up to date on Fresh Energy's work via our blog at fresh-energy.org or follow us on social media. In the meantime, thank you everyone for listening and subscribing to our podcast. You can support Fresh Energy's work by making a donation today. Visit our website at fresh energy.org and click donate in the upper right corner. As always, thank you for listening.